0: Morning, everybody. Good to see you all this morning. Thanks to Daniel, to Rachel, Sarah, Rob, for leading us and helping us as we've uh, worshipped by singing or by listening to singing this morning uh, as we've gathered together. Now, on your on your chair, there should be an outline. If you find that helpful, it's got all the verses. On the verses, will be up on the screen as well. And there's a few things if you want to write down. There's COVID secure pens in front of you and so on. But if that's a distraction, just ignore it. That's, that's fine. Now, I'm sure that unless you've been living on a Pacific Island with no Internet or TV or radio or whatever for the last two months, it won't have escaped your attention that we're in the middle of uh, something of a public health crisis, which has meant that the government has brought in, as, as Keith's already referred to, some incredibly strict laws to try to prevent the spread of this disease. They've introduced some of the strictest laws curtailing our freedoms for hundreds of years, probably arguably ever in British history, if you examine uh, history. Nightly curfews, in some instances. It's illegal to hug somebody. Could you imagine a year ago if they said it would be illegal to, to go and hug somebody? Strange, isn't it? We, we can't eat in each other's homes. We uh, can't go into restaurants. We can't even go and see our parents. We, we can't interact with people. These are the strictest laws we've ever experienced, I think, in British history and, and, and even stricter than during the Second World War. It's really quite amazing if you think about it. For the most part, I think most people, the majority of the population seems to have obeyed those laws and, and people generally seem to be obeying the laws and have followed them. But when you get laws that come to you and particularly when they're kind of curtailing your freedoms and they kind of impinge on your life, it's sometimes difficult, isn't it, to submit to a new law if the, the, uh, the government or the person creating that law is somebody that you don't particularly respect or like or is not kind of your uh, fl- sort of favorite person. It's certainly a lot easier to accept the new law when we accept the, the person or the government that is bringing that new law in. Now, of course, as, as Keith has already pointed out, as, as Christians, as believers in Jesus, we are commanded to submit to the authorities of our land, So We don't get to choose which laws we obey and which laws we don't, um, with some exceptions to that. But in general, we are to obey the authorities unless, of course, the authorities uh, command us to disobey God. But we don't get to, uh, to choose whether we accept the laws that the government put in based on whether I like the politician that's implemented them. We, we don't have that. Uh, freedom to do that. But there's no doubt that it's easier, isn't it, to accept the law when you do respect the politician or the official that's uh, introducing that law or is uh, delivering it. And especially when they actually obey that law themselves. It's difficult when the person themselves doesn't obey the law uh, when they're uh, introducing it. During the COVID crisis, there's there's been politicians and officials from all sides of the different sort of political spectrum that have lectured the public on obeying the rules during lockdown, and then have gone on and personally broken them, sometimes very publicly. Um, And that's not just a problem here in the UK. It seems to have happened pretty much in every single country. There's been a, a situation where someone's made an announcement and then sort of the next day had to resign. The health minister in New Zealand had to resign just after having introduced and brought in an incredibly strict lockdown in New Zealand. He was then Uh, discovered on the beach with his family and decided it would be appropriate to resign. Um, When when you create laws, it certainly helps if you have the credibility, doesn't it, and that people then respect you. The fact that you might not respect the authorities doesn't give us the freedom to to disobey them, but it certainly helps uh, our kind of frame of mind, our acceptance of the person uh, or of the law if we respect the person giving them. Now, the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20, which we're looking at over the next 10 weeks here at Regent, they're not laws that are made by flawed politicians or flawed uh, public officials. They are laws that have come from God himself. And God is obviously flawless. He is without any flaw, without any error, without any problem. They're some of the most important words that have ever been written down. And they're certainly the most important laws that we have ever written down in history. And one of the reasons they're so important is because they're the words of God. Exodus chapter 20 starts with this phrase, and God spoke all these words. It wasn't a flawed politician or government official. God spoke all these words, the only flawless one to ever exist. And the next 17 verses of Exodus 20 are the the record of the words that God spoke to Moses uh, as he gave him the Ten Commandments as Moses was up there on the top of Mount Sinai. So we're going to read Exodus chapter 20 verses 1 to 21. And we're going to listen to these words that God spoke to Moses there on the top of Mount Sinai. So you've got a Bible handy, Exodus chapter 20, and we're going to read from verses 1 to 21. And this is what um, Exodus 20 says. And God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will, hold, will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your manservant or maidservant, nor your animals, nor the alien or foreigner within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them. But he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother. So that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his manservant or maidservant, his ox or donkey or anything else that belongs to your neighbor. When the people saw the thunder and lightning and heard the trumpet and saw the mountain in smoke they trembled with fear they stayed at a distance and said to moses speak to us yourself and we will listen but do not have god speak to us or we will die moses said to the people do not be afraid god has come to test you so that the fear of god will be with you to keep you from sinning the people remained at a distance while moses approached the thick darkness where god was when, Moses, when God speaks to Moses and before he then gives him the Ten Commandments, he identifies himself firstly and he reminds Moses who he is. He says, I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. He tells Moses who he is and what he's done for the people. He's not a flawed individual. He's flawless. And unlike so many of our politicians and officials, the giver of the Ten Commandments can be respected, and he can be revered because he's God. And because he's God, he should be listened to, and we should obey him, we should respect him, we should revere him. The first thing that he says is that he is the Lord. And this is the name by which God had revealed himself to Moses in the past. Whenever you see the word Lord and it's all in capitals, be a big L and then small uh, O-R-D, but all in capitals in the Old Testament, of the Bible, whenever it's that word, it's been translated from the Hebrew word Yahweh. When it's not in capitals, it's a different Hebrew word. And the word Yahweh literally means I am who I am. In other words, I am the self existing one who simply is and I'm eternal. The great I am. I just am. That is who I am. God tells Moses that He is Yahweh, the God of Moses and the God of the Israelites, the one that they've known throughout their history. And because He's Yahweh, that means that He is the only God. There is no other God. It's just Him. Yahweh alone is God. He alone is self existent. He alone is eternal. That's what Yahweh means. And because He's God, the eternal self existing being who created all things and from whom all things came, he deserves and he demands respect and worship and obedience. The Ten Commandments that that God then gives Moses should be obeyed simply because they come from God, because they come from Yahweh, the Eternal, the Self-Existing One, the Only God. And because God treats his people with grace which means he treats us in a way that we don't deserve he doesn't just expect blind obedience because of who he is he also reminds Moses of what in his grace he's done for Israel he's freed them from slavery in Egypt not only is he Yahweh the great I am the eternal self-existing one And that alone would qualify him for giving the 10 commandments he's also the one who's rescued the nation of israel from egypt and the same is true for us today we don't obey the 10 commandments because we have to we should do it we're called to do it in response to who god is and to what he's done for us he's the same god he's still yahweh but for us it wasn't a rescue from physical slavery it was a rescue from spiritual slavery It was a rescue from the slavery of sin. We've sung, haven't we, that God split the waters, not for us of the Red Sea, but for us of that waters of separation from God, of of, of the slavery to sin. It's a rescue that God has performed for us. So because of who God is and because of what he's done, God can say to the people of Israel and to us today, you shall have no other gods before me. There are no other gods and you shall have no other gods before me. This is the first commandment. No one and nothing else should be a rival for our worship and for our devotion. Nobody and nothing else should be a rival for our worship and our devotion to God. You shall have no other gods. Yahweh is the only God, and so we mustn't worship other gods. All other gods are false. All other gods are deceptions, because there are no other gods. People might create them. We're going to look at that next week, how... Uh, humanity then goes on to create its own gods and idols, but there aren't any other gods. It is just Yahweh. He is the only one that is self-existent, the only God, the self-existing and eternal one, the great I am. God says these words to Israel about 700 years later. He says this through the prophet Isaiah. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord that word yahweh and my servant whom i have chosen so that you may know and believe me and understand that i am he before me no god was formed nor will there be one after me there just are no other gods it's only yahweh the eternal self-existing one anything or anyone else that claims to be a god is false it's a deception and it's a lie god says these words again through isaiah this is what the Lord says, Israel's King and Redeemer, the Lord Almighty. I am the first and I am the last. Apart from me, there is no God. There is no God. There is just Yahweh. So for a human being, for any human being to treat anyone else or anything else as if it's a God or as if it's the God is completely illogical because there is only one God. There is just Yahweh. And for a human being to treat anyone or anything else as Uh, God is also actually to fall for a deception, it's to believe a lie. Because the idea that there is another God is actually a lie from Satan himself. It comes from the pit of hell. Because for anyone or anything else to claim to be God or even a God amongst other gods is a deception from Satan. There is only one God and that one God is Yahweh, the God of the Bible. The one who is who he is, the one who has revealed himself to Moses and the, the one who ultimately revealed himself to humanity as he became a human being. The word made flesh living among us through the person of Jesus. And Jesus went on, didn't he? And we see that a number of times in the Gospels. And he claimed to be Yahweh. He said, I am before, Mo, before Abraham was, I am. And the Jews understood what he meant and they picked up stones to stone him because they believed he was blaspheming. Jesus was claiming to be Yahweh. So it's really important that we understand this according to the Bible, that all other religions and all other belief systems are false and are a deception. Okay, write that on your outline. All other religions, all other belief systems according to the Bible are false and they are a deception. It doesn't matter how sincere a person might be who follows another belief system or another religion or another another God, it doesn't matter how sincere they are, if what they believe in is not the God of the Bible, then they're worshipping a false God, a God of somebody else or of their own creation. So you can be sincere, but you can be sincerely wrong. You can be really sincere in your worship of someone or something, but you can be sincerely wrong. No amount of sincerity or devotion to a God or to a belief system or to a religion will make up for the fact that the belief system in itself, or that religion in itself is false, and is a deception from Satan himself. There are some religious groups that use Christian terminology, and they use the Bible, and on the surface, as we look at them, they can often seem to be Christian. They seem to be perhaps more or less Christian. But when you look at what they teach, then you find that the the portrayals they have of God in the Bible have been twisted or are incorrect or only partially accurate. And they twist, the deception twists what the Bible teaches or they add to what the Bible teaches. And if you examine what they teach, where they usually go wrong is around who they teach Jesus is and how they teach a person can get right with God. Real defining lines that are really helpful for us to critique well, this portrays itself as being Christian. This religion, obviously, over here is clearly not Christian at all. But this religion or this belief system or this, this kind of uh, belief pattern seems to be portraying itself as Christian. And a really helpful way of critiquing that, there are other things to look at as well, but is this. What, is, what are they teaching about who Jesus is and what he did? And what are they teaching about how we get right with God They are two defining lines that will define biblical Christianity and every other belief system, no matter how Christian it may look. They will either deny that Jesus was eternally God. They'll say that he became God at some point or he became a God. Or they'll deny that he became fully human. Or they'll deny his virgin birth or they'll say that he wasn't sinless or that he didn't rise from the dead physically. They'll deny or they'll teach wrongly something to do with who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. And then secondly, they'll teach that the way to get right with God is by having to do certain things. They might say, well, you have to put your faith in Jesus, but then in addition to that, you've got to do X, Y, and Z. These come back to being basically a false god or other gods The God that they portray might be really close to the God of the Bible, but it can still be a false God. And if people are worshipping a false God, then they're breaking the first commandment. And their worship of that false God will actually lead them away from God and away from eternal life. Jesus says that he's the only way to the Father. That's a really politically incorrect thing, isn't it, to say today, that this is the only truth. This is the only way. There is only one God. But that is what the Bible teaches. That is what Yahweh himself says. There are no other gods. It is me. So worship only me. Have no other gods before me or besides me. It's really important that we also, as believers in Jesus, personally study our own Bibles so that our own worship is accurate. Write that down. It's important that our own worship is accurate. We need to be really careful that without intending to, we create our own God or our own version of God that isn't biblically accurate. Now, as as believers in Jesus, we're obviously not going to worship the God of another religion or another belief system. That's going to be kind of obvious. We're not going to go and do that. But in a much more subtle way, we can be led astray and create our own version of what we think God is like or what we would like to think God should be or what the kind of God that we would like to exist should be. People sometimes say, I like to think God's a bit like this, or I, I, I'd like God to be like this, but God isn't like that. Sometimes you hear people say things like, you know, I, I, I like to think that God is like a big cuddly teddy bear who hugs me and loves me. And it's true that God does love or does do the spiritual equivalent of loving us and hugging us. We've kind of sung about that, haven't we? That the, the loving father heart of God who just loves us intensely. But he isn't a cuddly teddy bear. And if when we're worshipping God, we're picturing a kind of big cuddly teddy bear, even kind of without even thinking about it, then we're at best worshipping God inaccurately. And at worst, we could be creating a false God. We could be worshipping a false God. It's really important that the God we worship is the God that's revealed in the Bible. And that's why it's important that we keep reading the Bible and studying it so that as we're thinking about God, as we're relating to God, we're relating to an accurate portrayal, an accurate revelation of God rather than a kind of caricature of what we would like God to be like. Otherwise, we find ourselves worshipping a God that we've created and imagined to suit what we would like God to be like, rather than the God of the Bible. That's why it's important that the hymns that we sing and the songs that we sing in church are biblically accurate, because we often learn our theology from the songs that we sing, rather than the Bible. Often lines that we have in our head that we quote when we're praying or whatever, are actually lines of songs. And that's fine. That's good. But if the song is inaccurate, then obviously our perception or our understanding of God can be inaccurate. So it's important that we make sure that we are singing and that that, that we're worshipping with uh, accurate songs so that our understanding of God won't be faulty. We don't want to be potentially worshipping a God that we've created, a God kind of in our image, rather than the God of the Bible, the self-existent Yahweh, uh, God of the Bible. It's because God is the only God that we shouldn't worship any other gods. If God is the only self-existing God, the great I am, and if he's the one who's rescued us from sin and and given us this wonderful father-child relationship, then he deserves all our worship, doesn't he? And all the glory that we can give to him. It's both illogical and sinful to do anything else. In fact, even if he had never rescued Israel... Even if he'd never rescued us from sin and saved us, he would still be worthy of our worship and all the glory and the praise that we can give to him simply because of who he is. Even if God had never done anything for us, God would be worthy of our worship. That's kind of part of the lesson of the book of Job. It doesn't matter what God does for us so much as who God is. And even if God takes away all the things, all the blessings that we have, he's still worthy of our worship simply because he's God. Paul says this in Romans. For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. It's only from God that all things have come. It's only through God that all things exist. And it's only for God that all things exist. And so we should give him all the glory forever. And to fail to give God the glory, to fail to worship him and to to praise him, is to rob him, is to hold back what is rightfully his. If we worship someone or we worship something else, then we're robbing God of what he deserves. And God himself says these words to the people of Israel through the prophet Isaiah. I am the Lord. That is my name. I will not yield my glory to another or my praise to idols. It's not that God is some kind of needy person who needs to be told how good he is and, and how great he is all the time. God doesn't need our worship. He doesn't need our glory. He doesn't need our praise. He is eternally self-sufficient. God has no needs. God has no needs whatsoever, but he does deserve our worship. It's his by right. And for God to allow the glory and the worship that he deserves to be given to somebody else would be like God worshiping somebody else. It would be God going against who he is. It's going against his own character. And because he's perfect and, and, and sinless and flawless and holy, he can't do that. It's impossible for him to do that. It's impossible for God to allow that to happen. So God will not yield the glory that's rightfully his to somebody else. God won't allow the glory that is his by right to go to somebody else or to something else. He says these words again through Isaiah, bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. We were created, the number one reason you were created was to bring glory to God. That is why you exist. That is your primary reason. That's my primary reason for existence, for being on planet Earth, is to glorify God. That's not what our culture says. That's not what our flesh says. That's not what the world says. The world says it's all about us. It's all about our enjoyment, our pleasure, and all the rest of it, and our, our objectives and ambitions. That's nonsense. You were created. I was created. Number one reason. First reason, first and foremost, to bring glory to God. It's not for your glory or my glory. It's not for your pleasure or my pleasure. You were created for God's glory. So write that on your outline. You were created to bring glory and pleasure to God. That is why we exist. That is our number one reason for existence. There are other reasons, but that is our primary reason for existence, that we would bring God glory. We were created for his glory. And we've got a word that we use to describe bringing glory and pleasure to God. It's called worship. Worship is our response to God. We were wired to worship. We can't help but worship. The problem is we often worship other things rather than God, but we are humans and to be human is to worship. We were wired to worship, it's in us. So we all worship someone or something. We were meant to worship Yahweh. We don't exist for our pleasure. We worship God. We should live and exist for his pleasure and for his glory. And if worship is the response to God that we were wired by God to make, then we need to make sure that we're only worshiping the true God, the one true God. Everybody worships something or someone. It's what human beings do because God created us to be worshiping beings. The question is who or what do we worship? That's the big question. Who or what do we worship? Last week, we said that Jesus was the only human being that had ever kept God's law in its entirety completely. And he was the only human being capable of doing so because he was sinless. When Jesus spent 40 days and nights in the desert fasting at the beginning of his public ministry, Satan tried to tempt Jesus to worship him. Look at what it says in Matthew 4. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Satan, the deceiver, is always trying to get us to worship someone or something other than God. And he even tried to get Jesus to do this. But Jesus, the only sinless, flawless human being that has ever lived, didn't do that. He was devoted to worshipping God and serving him only. As Jesus prays to God the Father in John 17. He says these words, I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. Jesus, as our great example and the one that we trust in and the one that we follow, shows us how to have no other gods and how to worship only the one true God, Yahweh, the great I Am. He shows us how to do this. When Jesus was asked what the greatest commandment was in the entire Old Testament, all of the Old Testament law, this is what he said. The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. Jesus is quoting from Deuteronomy 6, which is a development of that first commandment to have no other gods. It's God explaining, if you like, what the command to have no other gods looks like in practice, in everyday life. There is one God, and he is Yahweh, the eternal, self-existing one. And he is one. He has no needs. He is one. So love him with all your heart. Love him with all your soul. Love him with all your mind. Love him with all your strength. That's what it looks like to have no other gods. And in this verse from Deuteronomy that that Jesus quotes, we see three things about what it looks like to worship God and therefore to have no other gods. Firstly, write this down. We're to love God with all our heart. God wants our affection. We're to love God with all our heart. God wants our affection. He doesn't need it, but he wants it. God created us to be emotional beings. And part of our worshipping him is to give him our heart, our, our, our emotions, that inner part of us, to give him our heart and to give him our love and our affections. One of the words translated as worship in the New Testament is the Greek word proskunio, which literally means to kiss the feet of someone. Lots of the words in the New Testament that are translated as English, uh, it's translated English as worship, are literally the Greek word to go towards the feet of someone and kiss their feet. See, Part of what biblical worship is engaging our emotions and worshiping God from the bottom of our heart. God wants us to engage our God-given emotions and outwardly demonstrate our love for him. He doesn't want us to withhold our emotions and our affections. Now, that's difficult for some of us, isn't it, who are emotionally challenged Brits. Lots of us in the room this morning are pretty emotionally challenged. We've been brought up to be like that. It's our culture, perhaps our family upbringing and so on but it's something we need to think about and challenge ourselves in. Do we emotionally connect with God in worship? Do we emotionally really connect with God? He's created us to be emotional beings. And when we withhold our emotions, we are holding back on on the worship, the devotion that he rightfully deserves to kiss the feet of God, to kiss the feet of the Lord Jesus. When you worship God, whether that's in public or in private, are you doing the equivalent of kissing God's feet? That's what proscunio means. Do I give myself to God emotionally? Do I express my love for others more than I express my love for God? Do I find it difficult to say to God, I love you, but I find it much easier to say to perhaps my husband or my wife or my kids, I love you. It's something to think about, isn't it? Do I do the equivalent of kissing God's feet? Or do we allow our culture and our upbringing to stifle our God-given emotions towards God? Something to think about. The second thing this verse tells us is that God wants us to love him with all our mind. God wants our attention. Write that down. God wants us to love him with all our mind. He wants our attention. Worshiping God is about choosing to focus on him. It's about using and engaging our brains. It's not just an emotional experience at all. Emotions are involved, but it is about engaging our brain. And if our brains are not involved, it's not really worship. God wants us to choose to focus on him. And not just when we're singing some songs in church on Sunday, but to make that choice to focus our attention on him right throughout the week in every situation. He wants us to focus on him instead of focusing on other things. Then there's obviously loads of legitimate things that we need to that need to occupy our attention. Uh, that, that, that's, that's a given. But this is kind of more about where does our mind go when we're not thinking about legitimate things? Where does our mind wander to? One helpful way to analyze this is to examine where our minds go when our minds wander, when we kind of switch off. Where does our mind first go to? I don't get legalistic about this, that's not the point. But, you know, is is my mind always just going to my next holiday or to my new car or is it to God? Is God my focus? As believers in Jesus, we're obviously not going to be worshipping the God of another religion. But we can find ourselves worshipping things or people in our lives rather than God Himself. We're obviously not going to be worshipping the God of another religion, but we can find ourselves worshipping people or worshipping things in our lives rather than God Himself. And the third thing this verse tells us is that God wants us to love Him with all our strength. God wants our abilities. Write that on your outline. God wants us to love Him with all our strength, He wants our abilities. One of the ways that we demonstrate and live out our worship of God is how we use our time and energies and our abilities. One of the other words in the New Testament that's translated as worship is the Greek word latrio, which means to, uh, to kind of serve and to do things in response to who God is. Do we put our time and energy and our abilities and our gifts, do we use them for God? Do we put them at his disposal that we might glorify him? Now, if you're anything like me, as you examine your life and if you ask yourself whether you're loving God with all your heart and mind and strength, you'll know that you're not. And that doesn't affect our salvation because we don't get right with God by keeping the Ten Commandments or any other commandments. We get right with God by putting our faith in Jesus and putting our trust in him. But because of who God is and all that he's done for us in and through Jesus, we should want to keep these commands simply because of who God is and what he's done. So... What can we do to try to love God with more of our heart, with more of our mind, with more of our strength? We don't want to just kind of put up another kind of law which we fall short of. That, that would just be legalism. That would just be missing the point. How do, we, how, do, how do we do this? How do we help ourselves love God with more of our heart and our mind and our soul and strength? Well, C.S. Lewis said these words, which I find out really helpful. In commanding us to glorify him, God is inviting us to enjoy him. In commanding us to glorify him, God is inviting us to enjoy him. See, God wants us to be motivated by love, thanksgiving, and delight, and not cold legalistic duty. The the, the key to loving God more is to be more delighted by him and to enjoy him more. John Piper has written these words, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. When we're unsatisfied with God, then we'll start giving our attention and our affection and our abilities to someone or something else. But when we're satisfied with God, when he thrills our hearts, when he amazes us, when we're satisfied in him, then we'll be bringing him glory. One will follow the other. So how do we satisfy ourselves with God? Well, it's by making that choice to focus on him and and deliberately choosing to fill our minds with who he is and what he's done. And we focus on who God is and we take time out and just deliberately focus again on who God is. And that takes discipline. But when we do that, and then when we think of all that he's done for us, then it will create a deep satisfaction, a deep joy. And when we are most satisfied with God, we will be bringing glory to God. That's why it's important to create time each day to spend alone with God in prayer and in Bible reading. God invites us to enjoy him by spending time with him. Yes, he is the awesome God, but he's also the deep, the the loving father who loves us and invites us into his presence to enjoy him. And as we read the Bible, we remind ourselves about who God is and all that he's done for us. And our deepest desires are satisfied as we enjoy God, the desires that God has wired into us. That's why it's so important that we set aside time to come to church and spend time with other believers focusing on God, just deliberately taking that time to do that, to take bread and wine, to remind ourselves once again of of the lovely Lord Jesus and all his wonders and all that he's done for us. And as we remind ourselves who God is and what he's done for us, then we will be most satisfied in him. Him that we sang at our wedding 25 years ago. All that thrills my soul is Jesus. He is more than life to me. And the fairest of 10,000 in my blessed Lord I see. God will be most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. When we get the first commandment right, the rest will follow. But if we fail on the first commandment, then we'll struggle with the rest. I'm going to finish by reading the words of Romans 12, verse 1. And then Daniel's going to lead us in worship as we sing uh, one more song, as we listen to one more song sung to us. Romans 12, verse 1 says this, Therefore, Paul has spent 11 chapters of Romans telling us about God and about the gospel, who God is and what he's done. And uh, as he then responds to that, he says, Therefore, in view of all that ele- past 11 chapters, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. When we think about who God is and all that he's done for us, what else can we do but to give him our whole lives and to give ourselves to him and to him alone in worship?